Okay, well, welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. My name is Patty Scott, and I'm the Infant Quality Improvement Specialist for TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else that might be listening. Today's discussion will feature Kathy Sally Randall from the Synapse Brain Care Training. Kathy is an RN, Master's Prepared, a Clinical Nurse Specialist, and a Board Certified Neonatal Nurse Practitioner with more than 20 years of neonatal clinical expertise. She's also the founder of Synapse Care Solutions, which is an education and consulting company dedicated to supporting neonatal neurocritical care units. Kathy is the Neuro NICU Program Consultant at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford University, but she also spends a good amount of time traveling the globe supporting other Neuro NICU programs all the way from Thailand to Brazil. She has published several peer-reviewed articles on the subject of amplified EEG and Neuro NICU programs, as well as the author of several chapters on nursing practice related to therapeutic hypothermia and the bedside use of amplified EEG. In 2018, Kathy helped to spearhead the development of the Neuro NICU certification exam. Through Synapse Care, Kathy offers Neuro NICU program consultation, in-person workshops, online courses, and an annual nurses conference called The One, O-N-E, all capital letters. This conference focuses on the expanding role of nurses and other care providers in the neuro NICU. It also focuses on the difference that one clinician can make for one baby and their one brain in one moment. I love that. So, Kathy, welcome. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes. Can you share a little bit more about your career and what sparked your interest in neuro NICU care and quality and safety? Yeah. Thank you again. This this is such an amazing opportunity. I really appreciate it. And and it is fun to reflect back on how all of our careers have gone and and especially especially mine. I think back to my early mentors as a brand new grad in the NICU. And I was surrounded by Baby Brain from day one, our our NICU educator and she was very much into into the baby brain so she trained us about that from you know our first classes and then she went on to get her phd later and, and was an amazing mentor academically to show us all you know how you could go back and and do that and she focused on neuroscience and then my preceptors were very much into nidcap and to developmental care and I think it just resonated with me from the very beginning how every little thing that we did impacted the baby's brain. And, and so really it was from day one and my early, early mentors at the bedside. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, TIPQC is excited to have offered the small baby brain care to many of the NICUs across the state. I was just hearing the numbers and I'm, I'm so proud. Tell us more about the courses and how did you choose the topics and who are the teachers for these courses? 
Yeah. So one of the privileges, like you mentioned in the intro, is that I've had the luxury and really the privilege to be able to travel around the globe and to meet many of the leaders in this field and to help big units and small units make little changes in their unit and to help improve baby brain care. So through that, I have been able to be exposed to some amazing presenters and researchers. And when the idea came and the really the trend in small baby care and small baby units started, people started asking us if we we're going to expand some of our courses to include that that very unique and important population. So instead of me standing and, and speaking for many, many hours, I decided I would tap into my network and basically pluck out my favorite speakers and some of the best experts I had run into around the world. And so this is, you know, people like Dr. Klebermass from Austria, who she's speaking on using AEEG in small babies, or whether that was, you know, Dr. Ender speaking on using imaging to look at, you know, the impact of infection, or whether that was Dr. Uh, Bell, who was talking about nutrition. And so I just had the opportunity to tap into my network that I've had over the last almost 30 years. And and to lean on them to share the best of the best of what we knew. And it wasn't so much that I wanted to focus on the pathophysiology of, of, the, of the kind of the disease processes that we're so used to seeing in the NICU. So it's not about the pathophys, about ROP or NEC or IVH, and that's alphabet soup to most of you. But if you're a clinician um, from the NICU, you know what I mean. So I didn't need to really focus on that because I knew that people were already such experts in those areas. And there were many resources that could teach them about the disease processes and, and that. But what I wanted to do for the, the small baby brain care course was to say, well, but then what? What is that impact of NEC and, and that, that all the inflammation and the infection and all of the consequences and interventions, what is that consequence to the baby's brain? And then what can then we do to optimize baby brain development? So for me, it wasn't so much about teaching about the disease, but about the impacts. And, and, and then there are so many interventions that I know we're going to talk about in this uh, presentation today that we can, we can implement them at the bedside and, and in real time, individualize those to the babies as they need and as their families need. So it was really about you know, kind of taking things to the next level uh, and thinking about how everything we do from skincare to how we choose to deliver respiratory support, how all of those choices impact the baby brain. And I love that focus because you're right. As nurses, we know the pathophys. We can look up the pathophys, but to understand why we do what we do and why we need to change our practice because sometimes the culture is not conducive to change. No. But if we understand why this is better, it helps all of us improve our care and change those things we've been doing forever, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I just heard this quote yesterday that said, we all want change, but none of us want to change. And I think that that's the truth of it. I like that. Well, I have had the privilege, excuse me, I've had the privilege of completing several of those modules myself and I found them informative, up-to-date, and clinically applicable. How often do you update this material, and what makes the cut? Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I think like any good course, um, every, we, we do continue to evolve it as practice evolves. And this care of the small baby and the trend and you know new research, it's definitely a hot topic. So anytime I hear of um, something that's kind of groundbreaking or someone presents something in a new way that we didn't get to include in the first round, we definitely bring them back. We, we did really a fun thing um, earlier this year, or kind of late last year and through this year. So I'll just say in the last you know six or nine months, we're we did open Q&A calls and we brought back some of the speakers and then just said, you know, what's new? And one of the best ones we did just recently was on skincare. And we had Dr. Medea Esser, who um, is an expert in neonatal skin and neonatal skin research. And she talked about some of the new products and new research that's coming out. So I think doing some of those interactive conversations are very helpful. And then that way, clinicians at the bedside who have taken the course or not can ask those questions of those experts. And then we include that in into the into the curriculum and then sometimes things older presentations come you know become out of date a little and so we pull those back and of course we love when people fill out our evaluation forms tell us which of the lectures are the most meaningful to them and help us to you know continue to refine uh, the topics but there were a lot of topics we we tried to keep them contained into what we call our our pillars or our rubik's cube sides you know there's called the NICU cube we actually um, got permission from rubik's cube to use that as a analogy in our course because I felt like this idea how of the the rubik's cube how it how it kind of fits together and when you change one side the rest of it changes that is how managing a small baby is when you are you know at the bedside making a change to respiratory or change to fluids it impacts everything else and it impacts the baby and if a baby gets an infection or gets a skin wound that impacts their whole system so understanding that interrelatedness and using that rubik's cube as a beautiful you know visual and representation of that was helpful for our students as well. So we we tend to, to lean on that as an analogy, but then also to you know continue to figure out what other pieces we should add um, to to the full course. But yeah, it's it's a, always an evolving process. Well, it sounds like it's a great example of continuous quality improvement. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, give us some ideas of how parents can get involved in brain care, Kathy. Oh my gosh, yeah, there are so many different ways that that we can have families um, really participating at the bedside. And, and obviously anything a parent does for an infant while they're hospitalized, while they're going through the experience of the NICU or later hospitalizations, the family is always that balm to everything we do. So if we in, induce stress, they, in, they induce comfort and they can help to ameliorate any of those situations. So that can start from something as simple as just touching and being, you know, being present and being there as, as that comfort. So whether that's through a procedure or post-procedure, you know, laying hands on their baby, that can be even just a simple start for some families. Then it's, you can begin, and, and I was listening to someone yesterday talk about titrating, right? We titrate meds, but we don't oftentimes think of titrating the parents as, you know, based on their response and what they're even emotionally able to do. So you can start with, you know, hand hugging, you know, starting with helping with just those those daily cares, diaper changing, um, getting them involved in that, teaching them how to read the baby's cues. So whether this is causing stress or whether this is making the baby seem 
more calm and having the family give you that that in, input input back into your care so that you can then care for their baby even better. So starting with small things like that, reading, reading in the NICU is such a popular topic and such a important topic for language development, for bonding, for all of those things that can allow the baby to um, be nourished and nurtured while in the NICU. And so we know that that, that research continues and is so important. Um, so reading and baby bookworm programs are another fantastic um, way that we can support that emotional connection between baby and, and parent and caregivers, but also to really nourish the brain and those neurons and those synaptic connections that are developing right there under our fingertips. I, I would be remiss if I don't at least mention skin to skin and kangaroo care. Of course, all of us um, in the NICU are um, familiar with that technique and and just encouraging that as early as possible. And I know that there may be in your units um, restrictions to those first couple days of life, but then what other things could we do in those first three days to prepare the mom or the dad or the caregivers for that experience? Um, I just was doing a uh, teaching lab um, at one of our local hospitals and helped them to create a, a lab where they could practice the standing transfer mm -hmm. instead of us picking the baby up and flying them through the air and setting them in mom's lap. We mm -hmm. can then, as an option, have the baby be laying in the bed, turn the mattress so the baby's feet are facing the mom, have the mom or dad or caregiver lean in and pick the baby up put them right on their chest, settle in. And then all of us, the caregivers standing around and holding the vent tubings and the IV tubings. And we created a lab so that the staff could experience this where they could pick, we mocked up a baby doll, gave them every little bit of wires and things that we could think of to make it like extreme sports, kangaroo care. And, and then that way we could practice, you know, maybe some, some unique sideline positions to help keep baby's midline with more equipment. And what was really fun at the end of this day, this, this mom um, who was, who had a baby in the unit, actually twins, hadn't been able to skin to skin one of them yet because of a surgical procedure. And we brought her in to the lab because we had set it up in the unit and we had her practice with this baby doll. And it was interesting because she said, you know, if I have the baby in one position, which would be kind of our traditional kind of tummy to tummy position, she says, I don't like that. I can't see the ET tube as well. And so I want to move the babies this other way so I can see them, them better. And, that, and so then she was ready the next day to actually skin to skin her baby for the first time. So I think involving them um, in those kinds of teaching sessions so we prepare mm -hmm. them um, is another way to just support that, that, that intervention, which we call an intervention, but it's certainly uh, based in, in trying to keep them connected in. So I think anything from touching to reading to talking to singing to skin to skin, all of those are just things that we can do every day and parents can do every day that, that make a difference in the baby, baby's brain and in that connection, that emotional connection between them that is so ruptured um, by that experience of the NICU. That's what I was sitting here thinking about as I was listening to you talk. So many of the things that you described, so many of the things that I've seen in my experience in the NICU, I'm, I, it's great that it's good for the baby, but it's also good for mom and dad to yes. help them feel like parents. That's something that yes. I've heard parents say for years. 
I just don't feel like I'm his mom mm-hmm. because those activities are curtailed, ruptured, as you put it, yes. because of NICU. And yeah. I wonder, it would be interesting to look at units that are really strong in this, are pioneers in doing this. Do they have less parents at three months of age, babies three months of age, that have less of the NICU-itis? Mm-hmm. And I, anybody that works in the NICU knows what I'm talking about with that. If they feel yeah. more empowered and they feel more like a parent in the beginning, how does that, how does that make their entire NICU stay? Now, certainly the baby's brain is more important, but also how did the parents then reflect on that on those months in the NICU? Would that impact it in a positive way? I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think just even logically, right, even without going to the literature and finding the evidence for it, which I am which I'm pretty sure I can think of two or three articles about this. You know, it's it's about that role acquisition. It's about role definition. It's about grief. It's about, it's all of it. And what we, what we know about babies' long-term development through toddler years and even through mental health of the babies and the families, divorce, all of these things are impacted on this emotional connection about being able to deal with the realities, but also dealing with the um, the outcomes. And we know if moms and dads' mental health is supported, and if that's through emotional nurturing care that we can help to provide in the NICU, we know that those babies' outcomes are also better. And we're talking rates of autism and social, you know, autistic-like behaviors, whether that's um, internally and internalizing um emotional problems like uh, depression or externalizing as an as ADD and ADHD and and um, and anxiety disorders we know that these things can make a difference later um, so all of it is so important um, for the short term and the long term I think the longer we go the more we see how much connectedness there really truly is Yes, yes, yeah. If no, if if anybody's listening hasn't heard of the um, Columbia University Family Nurture Intervention Science Department, it is an incredible resource. I would recommend that, and we can put it in the show notes um, below this as well to link to that. They have some amazing videos, and they have some really important work that is coming out and programs that other NICUs can adopt now that help the staff and even train nurses um, to be nurture specialists, which I think is when I first learned, I, mean, I still get goosebumps when I hear those <laughs> words together, because mm-hmm. I think we are nurturing by nature in the NICU. But there is also science of being a nurture specialist and that these individuals can support the bedside staff with some interventions and really help not just we, we say bonding a lot in the NICU, it's not about the bonding. I mean, it is bonding, but bonding is unilateral, right? It's me, I'm bonded to you. But emotional connectedness is is reciprocal. It's both the baby and the mother or father and caregivers connecting emotionally with that baby. And that is a whole nother level beyond bonding. And Mm so I love their their programs, their research, um, Dr. Welch has done there. It, it is amazing. And uh, the group of nurses that they've trained um, to really be models for all of us to nurture uh, more. That's fascinating. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. So Kathy, how many professionals do you think you've trained with this course across the United States and then across the world? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, 
even in Tennessee, we've already done several hundred. So you mm-hmm. can imagine as we scale that. But yeah, we're well over 1,200 individuals who've taken the course. I don't know the exact numbers worldwide. You know, I mean, like for different parts of the country, like which sure. which countries, but but groups like yours um, throughout your state and in, in units. So I think we're right about 1,200 now who've taken the course. That is amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So um, do you have a patient story, maybe a story that was shared with you by a nurse or a family that relates to the importance of this education and maybe how it impacted that specific baby and their family? Wow. There are so many stories, right? But um, one of the ones, I mean, kind of part of my I guess, origin story of getting interested in in creating online courses around uh, neurocritical care, it really goes back to kind of my early introductions into brain monitoring. And you mentioned some of that in, in my bio. Um, so learning to, to use AEEG at the bedside was something that I got introduced to accidentally through a, a job that I had. And it really... Per- piqued my interest because of this baby Maggie that I had taken care of many, many years ago before I learned about bedside brain monitoring. And baby Maggie was a five-day-old little term baby who had uh, was, a, was a readmit from home. She had apnea and jaundice, not something too uncommon and not you know, not so critical, right? She wasn't back in the day, like we used to see these babies crashing and burning with, you know, group B or something. But, you know, she came in as this term infant with apnea and, and hyperbilly. And, and I, and because she came from home in our unit where I worked at the time, she had to be in isolation for the first three days. We did cultures and all that stuff. And so with her, I was kind of hanging out with her in this isolation room. It was just me and the family. And, And what I realized about her is she was just starting to not behave normally. And as I had got to know, I was on this five-day stretch just just by coincidence. And and so baby Maggie started to have like the day two, her fontanelle was a a little bit kind of full. And then her behavior the next day and her feeding interest just kind of like waned by the end of that. I think I admitted her on Friday night. So like by Sunday morning, it was just kind of like not right. And what I realized with her is something was going on and, and I, and I, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And, and so I, you know, I was bugging the attending, I was bugging the fellow, like something's just not right. Something's just not right. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And and so eventually they ordered an EEG on her. I just convinced them so much. And so it was Sunday afternoon. And in our unit, that would have meant Monday morning, the baby would get an an EEG. And so we were there and I was, you know, taking care of her and the tech came in around two o'clock in the afternoon because of course, NICU babies are not first on the list to get EEGs. And they put the EEG on her and within minutes, literally minutes, this, there was a swarm of people at my bedside. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And so the tech turned to me and said, she's in status. She's in status epilepticus. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, I have been with her one-on-one. I have been staring at her because in my mind, I was thinking, well, I should see these seizures if she's in status. And it's this bad that all these attendings are rushing in and we're starting drips and all sorts of crazy things. I, I just thought, oh my gosh, how did I, how did I, the nurse who was one-on-one with her and for three days, how did I miss this? And and later I realized and I learned when I first started doing teaching with amplitude integrated EEG was that that most babies, many babies, seizures in the NICU, especially term babies with these, she ended up having E. coli meningitis, she, um, they were subclinical. 
And even though I was staring at her and one-on-one -on -one with her, her seizures were silent. And this is when I realized that we could use some of these tools to help us care for babies better. And, and from that, we are able to, at the bedside, advocate for these babies, look at treatment, and we don't need anyone else. It's a NICU tool that can really help us. And, and that experience really made me such a strong advocate for not only nurses' roles in baby brain care, but also in the technology and embracing all of these new technologies. That the important things we've talked about about touch and reading and you know connection, those are are important. But these other tools are also important, and that they have a role in helping us to care for babies better. And so that really was my introduction to starting to go out and to advocate for people to change practice on a very practical way using a new device that wasn't available to us before and that we could make a difference. We could treat this status. And I, so I look at Maggie, <clears throat> excuse me, and I, and I wonder, was she already seizing on Saturday and Sunday when that fontanelle started bulging? When, when I could pick up those subtle behavior changes, was she already seizing? And if I had had in our unit at that time a machine like this that I could have brought to the bedside and put those leads on and been able to see inside and assess her in that extra dimension could we have got ahead of those seizures and maybe broke them before they became so intractable and we had to, you know, really snow her and then she ended up being intubated and then we had to, we ended up taking her for imaging and, you know, all of those things, you know, which helped to get to her diagnosis of the E. coli meningitis. She had these massive cysts and so long that she needed, um, um, you know, antibiotics, the whole story. But the family in that situation, um, were two PhD students at the local university who had, had come from China and they had very limited English. And I'm talking, this is in the 90s. So you could imagine how good Google Translate wasn't right back in the day. But I could find enough um, you know, translating words online and we could get interpreters in to support them. Um, but we lost her to follow up too because they graduated and went away. And, and so we never got to, um, to know her long-term story. But I do think that when we learn of tools and new interventions, that it's our responsibility to embrace those and to look at how they can fit into practice and keep evolving so that we can do better as we go in the future. That's a great story. So I think that's a nice segue into asking you to tell us a little bit more about the power of one. Oh, thank you for asking about that. That I love talking about the power of one. Um, you know, when there's a story right about this, uh, the starfish, this boy walking on the sand and that he um, is throwing all these starfish that that came up onto the the shore. He's throwing them back one by one into the um, ocean. And this man comes by and says, there's too many of these. There's too many. You can't save them all. And he goes, but I make a difference to this one and this one and this one and this one. And um, one of my mentors, Dr. Raylene Phillips, used to tell this, this story. And, and it always stuck with me about this idea of one. And I think as as nurses, when we were gathering together at this at this one conference, the idea was, and, and maybe true for many people listening to this, you are that one person in your NICU who really cares about the baby brain. There tends to always be like that one champion. Um, and so and so what what I wanted to do with the one conference was to bring people together who were kind of standing little pioneers who felt isolated 
and who were just that one person in their unit doing this big work around caring about baby brains, whether that was they're doing the laundry back in the day, right? We used to do the laundry and wash all our buntings and you'd have that one nurse who'd like haul the laundry in and haul the laundry out. And, um, you know, there's always just that one. And I wanted them to know that they were one maybe in their unit, but that they weren't one in a, in a larger community. And so we started with that and then really started to think about Dr. Heidelise Owls and about her work back at, in Boston back in the day when she was in, you know, kind of beginning to conceptualize the synaptic theory of, of neonatal development. And, and she and what I took away from her research, her early research, was that she could only afford research nurses to to deliver developmental care eight hours, five days a week. So she could just pay for the day shift nurses to do it. And so they still randomized the babies to standard of care. You know, they had a stand, they had a control arm and then they had this intervention group. So even the babies who only got developmental care for eight hours a day still had better outcomes than babies who got the standard of care. And, and, and so what it meant to me was that e that every little bit mattered. So if you have just you in your unit caring about this, you make a difference. You make a difference in that day, that family's day, that baby's day, and and maybe even on that brain for a whole entire lifetime. So I just think one quote we shared yesterday in a training, right, is you can't do everything, but you can do something. And so do what you can with what you have where you are. And yeah, we can always do better, right? That's the whole point of Tip QC is making it better, doing quality improvement step by step, identifying and identifying issues, addressing those issues, making change, evaluating those changes, and then continuing. It's constant quality improvement, right? We we all are in constant um, you know process of improvement in our own lives, and so the work we do and through and through this, we can each make a difference. And the idea of one is just to to not be discouraged that you might be just that one person in your unit who cares and that you only are at the bedside and that you're not in leadership or some other role, but to realize that you make a difference. You are an influence over the outcome of that baby, over that family, you know, over that day and that you can make a difference and you can do it with one touch, one word, one moment you know, helping a mom hold for the last breaths of life, helping a mom to do breastfeeding for the first time, helping a mom do skin to skin the first time, helping moms lay hands, helping dads, you know, support the infant through a diaper change. All of those things are important and they just take one moment and one person to do those things. And, and to me, that was what we wanted to create this, this idea that you can't do everything, but that you can do something. And, and that that's that is enough and that you really do make a difference in those one moments. I love that. I love that. The other thing I, I was thinking about when you were talking is you never know. You could be influencing the nurse next to you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Spread, spread like wildfire, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I just actually finished. Um, a whole webinar series that I just did on being a new nurse influencer. And we do as nurses um, have that responsibility to influence. And we are always influencing, even if we're not doing it intentionally, we, we are influencing others. And you're right. We could have, we could be that spark, that wildfire that helps to bring that new practice forward. And when, when we see someone else do it, we know it's possible. 
right? There's that belief level. You're like, oh, we can't do it here. And that's why I love our community too, where someone's like, hey, well, we found this kangaroo chair. And you're like, where'd you find that, right? Like, We can share. And you're like, wow, that's possible. Or how'd you change that practice? How'd you change that policy? Together, we can inspire each other be- with belief because we're like, if they can do it, I can do it. It's possible. I've always said that I don't think nurses realize the impact that they have mm-hmm. on each other, on the parents, on the providers. I do not think nurses really, truly embrace the influence that they do have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think because what we do every day is extraordinary, but to us, it is ordinary. And we just do what we do. And when you then take that step back and realize how much you do know and how important your role is, it is overwhelming that that we we have this opportunity through our profession to to make an impact. And whether that's you're a therapist or a physician or a nurse, right? If you are entering into the NICU and and doing any kind of care, chaplain, social work, mm-hmm. you know, pharmacist, all of us play such a big difference, and we we do un- not understand our value, um, and especially nurses. Well, I agree. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I I love your discussion of the power of one. It's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it is truth. It is truth. It It is, is um, but it is also simple and uh, we can do so many things and we cannot do everything, but we can always do something. One bite at a time. (laughs) That's right. One bite at a time. Well, thank you, Kathy. We have enjoyed this and we really appreciate all the work that you're doing for mothers and babies and daddies. Yes. Thank you. Thanks again for the invitation.